do not boast because the effect of your boasting will be to separate yourself from the rest. It will be to, to bring in a notion of disunity in the local congregation. And what you need to be doing is striving all the more for unity. Therefore, do not boast. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part six of By Grace Through Faith, a series from Ephesians from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text continues in Ephesians chapter two, as the Apostle Paul explains foundational theological truths to the believers in Ephesus. You know, gifts are a wonderful way to express love to one another, right? Can you remember the best gift you ever received? Maybe it was a Christmas present from a parent or a birthday gift from a spouse. Well, just as we are recipients of gifts here on earth, we've been learning in this series that as Christians, we have received the gift of salvation and faith, the most undeserved and yet life-changing gift of all. Today, Pastor Paul will discuss how we can fall into the trap of removing God's grace from the equation as we live out the Christian life, a dangerous yet common mindset. Here's part six of By Grace Through Faith. Within the structure of Ephesians, Paul lays out in chapter one the manifold blessings that have been given to every individual believer in Christ. In chapter one, Paul makes plain that everybody who is in Christ has these blessings that he gives us in that extended eulogy. He then prays that we would know these things to be true. And then in chapter two, he begins to bring those individual believers into the local church. He starts to explain how we have not been saved so as to live our lives in isolation from one another, but rather everyone who is in Christ is now part of the universal church. And he's explaining the riches of God's design when he created that church. Chapter two is both a exhortation towards unity and a demonstration of God's wisdom in creating the church. It is both and, and verse 22 is perhaps summative of Paul's thoughts in this chapter. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The dwelling place to which he refers is the church. So every single believer is part of this church. Paul wants us to understand it, to have gratitude for it, and to strive within it toward unity. And you'll remember that's a particular concern of Paul's because in first century Ephesus, there would have been both Jews and Gentiles in this one congregation who are having to learn really for the first time what it is to be doing life side by side with one another. And thus he wants to show them the riches of the church so as to compel them, compel them towards unity. The way in which Paul's argument works in these early verses 
before he even mentions Jew and Gentile, before he even gets there, the way in which his argument works is to show us, first and foremost, that we all have a common starting point. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not one of us is an exception in this respect. We were all lifeless, without any hope, any inclination towards God. We all had a common starting point. He then goes on, and as we thought about last Sunday, we all have a common salvation. We have all of us, without exception, been saved by grace. We've all been saved and made alive together with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. No one has had a unique salvation experience in that respect. This afternoon, we heard wonderful testimonies from seven believers all of them unique, and yet, in one sense, all of them wonderfully the same, all testifying to God's grace in their lives that brought them to salvation. The third portion of this argument is to show us not only do we all have a common starting point, we all have a common salvation, we all ought to have a common experience a common experience in the Christian life. The race that we're all running should look the same. The same in that it should involve no boasting, but walking in good works. You'll see in verses 8 through 10, there are two purpose statements that Paul gives us. One in verse 9, so that... There's the purpose statement, and we'll look at the reasoning that leads up to that. But for now, just focus on that clause, so that no one may boast. So there's the negative. Should be true of all of us, that we are not boasting. Second purpose statement in the latter half of verse 10, that, or it could read, so that, it's the same word, so that, we should walk in them, speaking of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. So there's the two purpose statements within these few short verses. And through those two statements, Paul shows us what ought to be the common experience for everyone who is in Christ. A common starting point, dead in our trespasses and sins, a common salvation saved by grace alone, a common experience, not boasting, but walking in good works. And this common experience is given to us as a means of striving for unity within the church. Last week, I made just a few comments about the importance of unity as I see it throughout all of Scripture. It is truly a precious doctrine in God's eyes. He cares deeply that his people are unified. Before we jump in this evening, I would make a few more comments about the power of unity. Not only is it precious to God, it is tremendously powerful. And what I mean by that is that when a church truly strives for unity makes it of the utmost priority in the life of the church, that church becomes an immense force for the good of the gospel. 
that church becomes immensely powerful. In any local community, wherever you are on the planet, when a group of believers is genuinely unified, striving together, putting aside all of their preference issues, all of their sinful tendencies that would bring in expressions of disunity, when that congregation is unified, now watch the Lord work through them. He is pleased to use that body to advance the gospel. And so even this evening, as we thought about outreach and our evangelism efforts, understand it should be of the utmost priority as ever that we are striving for unity, that this church would be a powerful church for the glory of Christ. So we'll order our thoughts this evening by those two purpose statements, not boasting, but working not boasting, but working, considering first the prohibition, not boasting. Picking up in verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. The for, at the beginning of that verse, is justifying his previous comment. In verse 7, he talks about that in the coming ages, there is a manifestation of his grace that is yet greater than our apprehension of his grace today. For, verse 8, the reason why that statement is true is simply because you have been saved by grace. And you'll note, perhaps, Paul is, in a sense, repeating himself here. Look back up to that parenthetical thought that he gave us in verse 5. He exclaimed in the middle of a sentence, by grace you have been saved. He couldn't withhold himself. He bursts out in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And he is here in verse 8, repeating himself, for by grace you have been saved. Now here he adds two more words on the end, through faith. Paul is simply explaining further the mechanism that God has designed by which we are saved. It is by his grace, not of our own doing, and it is made effective by our faith. We look at Christ, we find him to be a sufficient savior. We take Jesus at his word. We trust him. We trust that he has indeed paid for our sins. And by expressing that faith towards Christ, our salvation is effected. Paul is simply explaining more the way in which God has saved us, by grace, through faith. It's important to note that those last two words have caused an awful lot of problems, strivings, disagreements throughout the history of the church. And the reason being because often many, many have pointed to those two words, the notion of our faith in Christ, as evidence that we are somehow contributing to our salvation. So if you were to go to a Catholic church, by way of example, they would not deny that we have been saved by grace. They would affirm that truth. And they would say it is by grace, and we work with God's grace by expressing faith. I was at university with a 
Catholic, a close, close friend of mine, we would go around for hours on this very issue. If you go back prior to the Reformation, you would find testimonies of Martin Luther himself teaching this very reality. In the university there in Germany, he would speak and say, you are saved by grace, not disagreeing with what it says right there in verse 8. And he would say, and you bring faith. God's grace meets with your faith and the two work together so as to save you. Or perhaps, as you've often heard it, heaven helps those who help themselves. That's how it's often paraphrased. Problem is the very next sentence. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. The word this in that sentence most likely refers to the whole act of salvation. It is an umbrella over the whole salvific work, including the expression of faith. God's working towards you is undoubtedly by grace. Your faith in Christ is also by grace. You can't even take credit for that. Now, we might struggle with that experientially because as far as you are aware, you decided to express faith in Christ. As far as you experienced it, you looked at Christ, you had some thoughts about him, and you decided to take him at his word. And so experientially, perhaps from your perspective, it does seem that you contributed But what you need to understand is that God was at work in your heart so as to bring about that impulse of faith. You did not express faith in and of yourself. Again, verse 1 of Ephesians 2 is one that you need to inscribe into the deepest recesses of your heart. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Make sure that you hold on tightly to verse 1 when you come to verse 8 and you read, you have been saved by grace through faith. So that you know that even your expression of faith, your esteeming of Christ to be a savior is a gift of God. He worked in your heart so as that you would conclude those realities about his son. So the whole Work of salvation from beginning to end, including your faith, is an act of grace from God. And that is why perhaps the most important word of the entire Reformation is the single word alone. That is what the Catholic Church took such issue with. They would affirm that we're saved by grace. But don't say that we're saved by grace alone. And that is the doctrine that we hold tightly onto, that we prize and champion and sing of and return to each and every Sunday because it is what the Bible teaches. We are saved by grace and grace alone. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not... Verse 9, a result of works. And here comes the purpose statement. God so worked in this manner, his plan of salvation for thousands upon thousands has always been the same. It would all be of grace, grace alone, so that 
What was his intention in working in that manner so that no one may boast? That is why God worked the way he did, that you would not boast. Some cultural context around this purpose statement. We tend to think of boasting as only ever negative, improper speech that draws attention to ourselves in an arrogant, audacious manner. I don't know that we would necessarily ever affirm the idea of boasting, at least in our culture today. That's not how Paul's readers would have understood boasting. In the Greco-Roman world, there was understood to be a proper context for boasting. The proper context for boasting was often in a sporting event where the winner, the victor, has demonstrably shown himself to be better than his opponent. And thus, in that context, is it entirely right for him to boast? Nobody would label him as arrogant, puffed up, pride-filled, if, having worked so as to win the competition, he then boasted. That was the right response in the Greco-Roman world. There was a boasting that was acceptable. And notice what boasting did in that right and proper context was to set at least one person, if not a group of people, apart from the rest. Imagine a sporting event with many involved and one emerges the victor. Well, he is now allowed to boast. And in his boasting, he separates himself from the rest. That is the context that these words would have been received in. And Paul says, you're not allowed to boast about this. You are not permitted to boast with regards to your salvation. You cannot boast because you didn't work for it. You have come out an almighty victor, a wonderful winner, but not by your own means. It is God's grace that has worked in your life so as to put you where you are today and therefore boasting is prohibited. And again, within the broader context of chapter two, you understand why this purpose statement is so important. If boasting, even in its proper context, invariably had the result of separating one from the rest, Paul is concerned to show us the glory of God's design in the local church and compel us to strive all the more for unity. And he's saying, do not boast because the effect of your boasting will be to separate yourself from the rest. It will be to, to bring in a notion of disunity in the local congregation. And what you need to be doing is striving all the more for unity. Therefore, do not boast. As you read those words, I wonder what is going on in your heart. I know that often I think about the notion of boasting in my salvation. And honestly, it feels so foreign to me. I praise God that I was saved into a context where the doctrines of grace were taught. It was years before I came across a theology that might even hint at the fact that I contributed to my salvation. And so 
probably in large measure because of how God introduced me to the Christian faith in that very biblical context, the idea of boasting in my salvation feels so foreign. I praise God for that, and I, I pray that also it feels like a foreign idea to you. How could I ever come to boast in my salvation? But with that being said, I want to exercise a word of caution. You need to have caution when you read these words and you think, I am so far from boasting in my salvation. Paul has the whole work of salvation in view, as we thought about last week, the initial moment by which you are brought into union with Christ, the sanctifying and persevering process, all the way to glory. And though it might be true that you look at that initial moment of salvation and it might be foreign to you to even imagine that you could boast about that, probably far less likely is the idea that you could never boast about your perseverance. Perhaps without even realizing it, you are more prone to draw attention to yourself and your efforts and what you bring to the table as it relates to your ongoing perseverance. As I have thought about it, I do believe that would be the area within our Christian lives from beginning to end where we are most prone to boast. We are most prone to think, I'm really something special here. Look at the way in which I'm serving in the church. I wonder if they can see just how many hours I'm putting in here. I wonder if they're noticing just how hard I'm laboring and just what a blessing I've been to so many people. It would be that area of persevering that perhaps our hearts are prone to seek credit. And one question you might ask yourself to test where your heart is at is how much am I boasting about the cross? You see, when Paul speaks of the gospel, he always does so with a very black and white, in or out kind of theology. There's no middle ground. You're in Christ or you're not. When you read Paul, that much is clear. And so surely it stands to reason if you are failing to boast in the cross, is that not at least to some degree indicative that your heart is prone to be boasting in something else? If you recognize that your words, as you speak about your testimony, not just of initial salvation, but your testimony of going on in the church, if you recognize that there is not that much cross in there, I'm honestly not someone who boasts in the Lord Jesus as the only means by which I am a Christian this day. It is perhaps representative of the fact that your heart is prone to boasting in yourself. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. If you think more about how much you're accomplishing in the Christian life than what Jesus has done for you, God wants to help you turn away from this. We heard some important reminders today about the temptation to take credit for our own salvation and perseverance in the faith. Pastor Paul introduced a helpful way to gauge how we're doing in this area by asking ourselves, how much am I boasting about the cross? Pray and ask the Lord to take away your self-reliance so that you would solely recognize His saving power and not your own effort. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Trust in Christ's all-sufficient work on the cross today. If you'd like to hear more about Jesus Christ and his saving power, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts for a free audio archive of Pastor Paul's teachings. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. As a program reminder, on Monday, October 3rd, our website will change from timelesstruthtoday.org to beholdingchrist.org. That's beholdingchrist.org. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. It's part seven, the conclusion of our series, By Grace Through Faith. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.